you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you're using one of the ones we provided for you, it's page 732. We're in a sermon series on the Last Supper, and this morning we're observing the part of the text where the Lord's Supper takes place. I don't have a a big fancy introduction this morning, so uh, sometimes it's a little hard to get going, so I'm going to ask you to... Get going. <laughs> Introduction check. Um, what we will be doing, though, and uh, maybe this will help us speed up, is we're going to read, uh, we'll read the scripture, and then we're going to take the scripture, and alongside of it, then we're going to begin to superimpose what the, a real Passover meal would have looked like. Not, not a contemporary one that uh, Jewish people celebrate, but what the Passover meal celebrated in AD 33 would have looked like. And we're going to superimpose it on top of the scripture and then try to uh, glean from that uh, some of the significance and meaning that comes out of scripture. So Christ says things and does things that we see here in the word and they are significant in their own right. But sometimes if you place them alongside of the actual meal, uh, more significance drawn out. That's our goal today. And after we do that, we're going to step back and try to give a broad perspective on uh, maybe what Christ is trying to do. So, there, there's your introduction. Let's read chapter 22. I'm going to read 14 through 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you that I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper... He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. We're going to leave uh, the betrayal of Judas for next Sunday. Um, And we're going to focus instead on on the whole meal. And what we're going to do, like I said, is we're going to walk through each element of the Passover meal and, again, kind of follow sequentially down. So if you're wondering what's the order going to feel like, we're going to kind of follow the Passover meal and then say, ah, there it is in Scripture, there it is in Scripture. That's, that's our purpose here. But before we do that, I want you to look just very quickly at um, one of the first ver- words or phrases in the 14th verse, when the hour came, is what it says which obviously is referring to the, the hour of the meal. But if you, if you look at the whole way chapter 22 is constructed, and we're working through chapter 22 this whole month, if you see the whole construction of the chapter, it, it kind of unpacks a little bit more. If you look at 22 verse 1, it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover was approaching. So it's being written from the, 
we're from the standpoint of like a week out looking at the Passover meal. Okay? And then if you look at the seventh verse, it says, Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So verse 1 is a few days out, kind of anticipating the Passover. Verse 7 is the day of the Passover. And verse 14 is the hour has arrived. And so the trajectory of the whole chapter is one that's leaning us into the Passover meal as its own idea of a climax. And since chapter 22 in Luke which sits right in front of the, you know, the arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ, chapter 22 creates its own climax, and that climax is the meal, is this shared Passover. And so there's, a, in a sense, in the Gospel of Luke, a climax in front of the climax is what he's doing. And, and the way we might think about it is, and the way we might think about this that's before us, is that what Jesus is doing here is he's illustrating the significance of his death, before he demonstrates his death. There's a sense that it's almost like he's taking time to draw it out or, or to paint it or, or to make a commentary on something that he's about to go and do. It's, this is his opportunity to express and symbolize and speak to something that he's then going to go and do for real. And the Gospel of Luke kind of matches that with this climax in front of a climax. And so the hour comes and they enter in to the Passover. Okay, and here's how a Passover would take place. Just starting from the beginning. As the guests would arrive at a normal Passover, one of the first things that would happen is they would have their feet washed. Any kind of formal Jewish engagement, the custom was, was to wash the feet of the guests as they arrived. And this would typically be done by the servant of the household. Now, I know you don't see in the Gospel of Luke the feet being washed because it's not in the Gospel of Luke, but it is in the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, the disciples' feet are washed, except what's unusual in that Gospel is that Jesus Christ is the one who does the washing, which would have never happened. That was not customary. What was custom was is that the servant would do it. But what Jesus does is he turns the whole... Imagine this, you're walking to the meal, and Jesus immediately turns the whole meal on its head by kind of defying customary convention and washing. So through the washing of his disciples' feet, he begins to teach them about service and about how uh, the one who should be honored is, in fact, the one who does the serving. And those images come out, and in fact, they'll come out next Sunday in Luke chapter 22. So Luke doesn't miss the lesson. He just doesn't talk about the foot washing. But that's how this meal would start. If you were the 13th apostle, and you were arriving for the Last Supper to share with Christ, you would immediately be challenged by the fact that he would wash your feet. And you would then wash your hands, and you would go to sit down. And it says here in Luke, that this is where Luke does start to pick up, it says they reclined at the table, right? When the hour came, they reclined at the table. And that's custom and this time of, uh, typically they didn't have chairs and tables that are 32 inches off the ground. They were about an, a foot and a half, about 18 inches. They were short tables, you might think, and they would recline against cushions or that sort of thing. That was the custom back then. And in the modern Passover meal, they call it a Seder meal. In the modern Seder, they actually have given that significance. They will, even if they sit at a normal table that you're familiar with, they'll put cushions behind their backs, because in their minds, they're free, and free people recline. They're no longer slaves. So in a modern Seder, they make sure that they are reclining, at least symbolically, to note when we were in Egypt, we stood because we were slaves. But now that God has made us free, we recline at the table. 
And so they're, rec- they're reclining at the table. And if you were to look at the table, as you would arrived, if you would have your feet and your hands washed, then you would recline. If you looked at the table, you'd see a number of things. But what I would call your attention to at the table uh, that's unique is there would be four cups of wine. Four distinct cups of wine. And these cups of wine are the engine that kind of propels the meal throughout the night. The cups of wine set the stages of the meal. In uh, Hebrew tradition, it was a bare minimum, if you were going to call it a Passover meal, is you had to have these cups of wine. They would say, even if you have to sell your household, you have to have these. This was one of the basic elements of having a Passover meal, was these cups of wine. And in the, in the ancient Hebrew, Hebrew tradition in 33 AD, they named these cups, or they signified these cups, after uh, the f- four verbs in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, the Lord proclaims greatness about himself. The Lord proclaims to the Hebrew people what he's going to do for the people. And he says it this way. This is what he says. As soon as I find it, here we go. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will, here's the first one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Here's the second. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That scripture there, they grab the four leading verses and each cup, as you would approach the cups of the meal, there would be a prayer essentially over that element of the verse. And that, they would, that would bring to the remembrance of the people what the Lord had done for them. And these cups, like I said, drove the meal. And so as, as you would be reclined to the table, waiting for it to begin, the ceremony would begin. And it would begin as the head of the table, who in this case is Christ, as he would begin to pray and open it with a blessing. That's how it would happen. There'd be, there'd be a, a prayer and an opening with a blessing. And here, I actually believe in Luke chapter 22, you can see elements of that that are present. I think uh, verse, chap- the 15th verse is actually part of this, this period in the meal, where he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom. I think that's an entry if in a normal Passover. I think this is part of Christ's kind of introductory statement over the table. And one reason I think that is because the very next thing that would happen after a prayer and a welcome would be the first cup would be drank. This cup, the, the cup that signifies the, the idea that God will bring us out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And he would take the cup and he would pray over it and he would say something about it and then they would drink. And you find that here in the 17th verse. You see this? After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That phrase, the fruit of the vine, is a distinct Passover phrase. It's said over and over and over again through the meal in relationship to these cups. If you... If you happen to notice, as we read, Luke, it will feel confusing if you get to 15 and you you desire to eat the Passover and you're like, okay, that's the bread, but they don't eat anything. And then they get to the cup and you're like, well, that's the cup. And then you get to 19 and then they take the bread and then you get to 20 and they take the cup. There's this kind of, this echo 
or this redundancy. And that's because the meal is in large way, has redundancy. It has these prayers and it has these cups. And so what you're seeing here in the verse 17 is not the cup that Jesus used when he shared the new covenant. It's one of the cups in the meal. Well, after the cup, the first cup, what would happen is there would be a sharing of bitter herbs and they would take bitter herbs and they would dip them in salt water and then they would eat them. And the salt water was to signify tears and the bitterness was to signify their slavery. And so there's this this moment on the front end of the service where they remind themselves of the pain of being enslaved when they were in Egypt and they dip those and they eat them. And, And that... That happens here in the meals. And then the following thing, after that would happen, after they would kind of bring to remembrance the pain of their, of their time of slavery in Egypt, this would be followed by a series of questions, four questions that would be asked of the head of the table. And typically, they, if it was a household, if it was your household, it would be the youngest child who would, who would ask this question. It was a way of raising kids up. But if it was an, a a situation like this, it would be the, the youngest person or the junior person in the meal who would ask the head of the table four leading questions that would pull out the Passover story. And the questions would sound like this. Something to the effect of, on other nights, we can eat the lamb however we want to eat it. What's unique about tonight? What is unique about this Passover? On other nights, we don't do this. What, why are we doing this tonight? The, the, all the questions would kind of be along those lines of saying to the head of the table, what is unique about this Passover? What's unique about this night apart from all other nights? Now imagine, imagine you're sitting in this room and Jesus is being asked that about this night. Just think of that. that Jesus is being asked by one of his disciples, why is tonight special? Because tonight's not just special because it's the Passover. It's special above all Passovers. And these questions would go through, why is tonight different? Why is tonight special? And after all of those questions would have happened, they would have stopped and they would have, they would have gone into a time of worship. They would have actually begun to sing a hymn. And the hymn would have come out of the Psalms. There's a period in the Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. It's called the Hallel. And they would have begun to sing from the Hallel. So they would have probably sung Psalm 113 and 114 at this point. And that would have been a way that they kind of initiate or open the meal of the Passover. And once they had sung the songs, they, the head of the table would then grab the second cup and he would, re, he would pray and read over it. He would read that phrase, I will free you from being slaves to them. He would read that second part of Exodus chapter 6. And this is the cup of deliverance. And he would, he would, he would pray that over them and then they would, they would do a special time of prayer. They would drink their wine and then they would wash their hands. And so what you have, if you if you're imagine that you're there with Christ, you're coming into the meal and he's washing your feet. And then you're reclining at the table and he's saying to you, I will bring you out. And he's saying to you, I will free you from slavery. And he's answering the questions, all these questions about the Passover and the significance of the Passover. And following all of that, right before the meal was served, you would have a second washing of your hands. So you as custom goes, you would have washed your hands and feet on the way in to the meal. But this is a second time that you would wash your hands. And the reason you'd wash your hands now is because this, the Passover meal happens in the middle of a time, the, the festival of unleavened bread. 
And the festival of unleavened bread begins on the seventh day of the month and it goes all the way to the 21st day of the month. And during that time, the Hebrew people were not supposed to eat of any bread that had leaven in it or yeast. They were not supposed to eat anything with yeast because yeast to them was signifying sin. And so the whole idea was to kind of purify your house. Even in modern, even the modern Jewish tradition right now is, is during the buildup to the Passover, not only did they use unleavened bread, but they spring clean the whole house. They clean everything in the house. In fact, the tradition is, is they, they do this top-to-bottom cleaning of the house, and then traditionally the mom or wife will leave out an obvious dust bowl, Right? Because I think in, in tradition, the father is supposed to announce the house is clean. So he would come home and see a dust ball, and he takes it, and he dispels it, and he's like, now the house is clean. So there you have it. Uh, that's how it would happen. But this, it's, this path, it's this path of recognizing the presence of sin in our lives and the need to, to purify ourselves on the way to the Passover and coming out of the Passover. And they wash their hands in this case as a way of kind of, of showing the significance of purity before taking of the lamb. And Paul, Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to what he says about all of this. Saying to the church, he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. I love how Paul recognizes our reality in Christ. Because listen to what he says. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been crucified. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's pointing to this whole, the whole feast as significant towards pointing towards the Passover lamb. Elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians 11, the same idea comes up when Paul charges us to uh, approach the the Lord's Supper with self-examination, for us to examine ourselves with sobriety on our way to the Lord's Supper. It's this idea of desiring purity as we go meet with the Lord. And in the tradition, this would have been signified by the washing of their hands. And once all of that is done, they would arrive at the meal. And the meal would have a number of things. For one, it wouldn't just have bread and meat and vegetables, though it would have those. But this is the place where, you know, a a wealthy family in a good year could have had a huge bountiful meal, and some other families might have bread, lamb, or goat, and and vegetables. So it, it, at this point, there's a lot of freedom in the household for how much would show up. But you would have these basic elements, the bread, the lamb, and vegetables, because they're part of the meal. And the whole meal would be bound by the bread. In fact, it could have been wafers. It actually could have been not that far off from some of your traditions, um, these bread wafers. But the, the way it would happen is there would be a prayer. The, Lord would, the head of the home would pray over it, and then he would take the bread, and he would break it, and he would dip it, and he would share it. And that's what would commence the meal. And then, as you might imagine, bread would be served during the meal. And then the meal would again be closed out by the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the bread. The the bread bound the meal. And it's here, I think, in Luke 22 that we find Christ speaking of himself. It says in 19, And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this 
and remembrance of me. This, I believe, is happening at this point in the meal when the bread is being served and he's breaking it. In fact, it was also convention you would dip it. And so when you read in the Gospels, when he says, someone's going to betray me, and they say, well, who is it going to be? And he says, well, the person with whom I dip this bread, he will be the one who betrays me. That's part of it. What they actually had is they had a sop, a dish of horseradish sauce or some bitter herb, some herb that would... That no one would ever eat, right? And in fact, in, in the modern tradition, they use horseradish and they dip it because when you take it, it actually makes you tear. The notion is, is that it's supposed to be so bitter that it evokes tears in your eyes because throughout the meal is this sense of bitterness and forlornness of remembering what their life used to be like. I Man, I'm just here to say, like, if you've been in Christ for a, a long time, it is important to remember the bitterness of being outside of the grace of God. Like when we approach this table, you ought to remember. And so they would have this, and that that very likely might have been what they were dipping when Christ dipped with Judas. But then there would be this meal, bounded by the breaking and the sharing of the bread. It would be there, and I, I just think about this. In our scriptures the bread and the cup are placed right alongside one another. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it and shared it and said, likewise after supper, he took this, that cup is after supper. There could have been an hour between the two. There could have been a whole meal between the two. In fact, actually the breaking and the sharing of bread, Christ could have been signifying that the whole meal is his body. There's a sense that the whole thing is bound by the bread, that maybe he's speaking about the whole feast, that this whole feast is my body, that, that what we're doing here, this is me. In fact, in the middle of it is the lamb. It is it's peculiar to me that throughout this entire sequence, in none of the scriptures do we ever find Christ talking about the lamb. But I think the Lord is pointing to, at some level, to the whole meal, the whole event, the whole sacrifice, all that's being done here. He's saying, I am telling you that this is me. I'm illustrating for you now what I'm about to demonstrate for you tomorrow afternoon. And they would eat. And when they were done eating, they would arrive at the third cup. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. And it's linked in Hebrews, uh, or excuse me, in Exodus to the sentence, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That's what's coming out of Exodus 6. And it's that cup, I believe, that Jesus took and he shared. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. It's that cup that he's using. Which if you stop and think about it, first of all, just the phrase, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The fact that the Lord himself would choose the cup of redemption to teach that is one thing. And then if you stop and you think, you know, I've, I thought, I'd go, well, I've never really thought of myself as redeemed by judgment. I've thought of myself as redeemed by mercy. I've been redeemed by grace. I've been redeemed by love, but I haven't been redeemed by judgment. And then if I, as I stopped and I meditated and I thought about it, I thought, you know what? I have been redeemed by judgment. Christ has borne my judgment. And through bearing my judgment, I've been redeemed. 
There's a sense that the outstretched arm of God and the mighty acts of judgment of God that should have fallen on us have fallen on Christ so that we might enjoy the redemption that he gives us. And in all of this, Jesus says something new. He, he retools the meal when he says this. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And when he's saying that, he's pointing, I believe, to Jeremiah 33. And Jeremiah talks about a new covenant. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 33. He says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And listen to this, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Christ, when he raises the third cup, the cup of redemption, he promises to forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. And then it is unclear what happens after this or the order of which. After the third cup, either there is a period of time of sharing and prayer There certainly is prayer on the way in and out of the third cup and the fourth cup for that matter. In fact, I think the prayers in John, John John doesn't really talk about the Lord's Supper, but he talks about all the substantive conversations that we had that evening. I think the prayers in John that show up there in the 14th and 15th chapters are actually taking place in this meal. They're part of the prayers. Imagine that the prayers that the people might have gotten were the prayers that that the Lord gives in the Gospel of John. But there would have been prayers, and then there would have been the fourth cup, Or there would have been the Hillel. It's not sure whether they would have sung and then done the fourth cup or or vice versa. We know in Matthew, the way the meal ends is it says they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so it's clear to us from the Gospel of Matthew that they end the meal kind of finishing up the Hillel. But it's not sure whether they had the fourth cup or not. I'll just share this with you. We We can't know, but this is fun to share, so I'll share it with you. Some people think that they actually did not have the fourth cup of the Passover, that Jesus ended the meal prior to the final cup. Then this cup is, uh, this is the phrase, I will take you as my own people. That's the verb, I will take you. That, that, that the Hebrew verb that's over that cup. And some think that he actually, they ended the meal at the Hillel and they didn't have the fourth cup. And that this is the cup that when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane saying to the Lord, Lord, if it would be your will to take this cup from me, but not my will, it would, like, if, if you would remove this cup, but not my will, yours be done. That cup, it's, it's the thought that that cup, like in a sense for Christ, that the Passover never ended until his time on the cross. In fact, if you look at John chapter 19, there's a phrase, at the very end right before he dies, he says, I am thirsty. And they pass up like on a sponge, a, a fruit of the vine, wine to him. And, he, and he, they touch it to his lips. And then he says, his next words are, it is finished. And there's this idea that maybe Christ held the Passover meal open all the way till he was at the cross. And I like that. I, I'm, you know, there's no, the answer can't be found. 
Um, but we can wonder at the Lord. And certainly we cannot overestimate him. But this was the meal. This is how the meal would have happened. You would have come and you have, would have had your feet washed and then you would have reclined. Then you would have prayed and then you would have been reminded that God will bring you out. And then you would have asked questions. Why is tonight different? And the Lord would have told you why tonight is special. And then you would have been reminded that the Lord will save you. And then you would have sat down and you would have washed your hands again, desiring purity because the Passover's coming. And then the bread would have been broken and the Lord would have said, this is my body. And then the, the, the Lord, you would have had the meal. And throughout the whole meal, there would have been the dipping in the bitter herbs and the reminding of where we once were and, and the whole idea of, of the Lord being the sacrificial meal. And after the meal, the Lord would have reminded us with the third cup, I am your redemption. I will redeem you. And then I will take you as my own people. Just imagine, are we allowed to imagine we were Christ? Is that he was a man. Imagine you were Christ. Imagine sitting at the table when the apostle John passes you the lamb. Imagine this is the this is this meal is an illustration of you. I don't even think I could eat. There's a verse I want us to to go back to. It's verse 15. It has caught my attention. Uh, for the past month in light of the intensity and the difficulty of this meal and all the profound truth that's happening here. In all of this, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I found myself tripping over what can this eager desire be? I would not eagerly desire this. I thought to myself, maybe, first I thought maybe he eagerly desires the fellowship with the, with the disciples. Like, I've really looked forward to spending time with you. Like, could that be it, I thought? But when you look at the meal, and the conversations of the meal, this is what happens. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Actually, in John, he looks, the Gospel of John, Jesus looks Judas in the eye and says, it's you. Go do what you need to do. Like that, I wouldn't eagerly long for that. And in this meal, your one of your most faithful disciples is going to say, "I would never, I would never deny you." And you would have to tell him that before the cock crows, he will have denied me three times. Like, I wouldn't desire that. And you're going to have to, in the same meal. Listen to your disciples who, when you say they're betrayed, they kind of, no, no, Lord, it can't be us, it can't be us. And then in the scriptures, it's almost like a flip switch. And the next thing you know, they're talking about who's going to be the most honored person at the table of the Lord when the kingdom comes. They're fixated even now on their own esteem. And in all of this, you have the fact that somehow the Lord has blocked them from seeing the truth and from seeing with clarity all that's happening in front of them. It's almost as though the Lord is saying to Christ, you cannot even bring a close friend to the cross with you. You have to do this alone. 
Like, I just don't see myself eagerly desiring that. And I thought, well, maybe he eagerly desires it because he's, let's just get it done. Like, I eagerly desire to get it done, but you just don't find that in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he leaves this meal and then pleads to the Lord with tears, like blood, drops of blood that come out, Lord, if it would only be your will that this, there is another way. That doesn't sound to me like he eagerly desires it. And then I thought for a moment, maybe he was just hungry. Yeah, and that was so lame. I was like, that ain't it. Like, I've been smelling that lamb all day. I, 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 it was so obviously not right. I'm not even going to, like, refute it. His eager desire. What does he eagerly desire? Again, this is what I think. I think if you follow through the Passover meal, God is showing off the whole time. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you and I will take you and you will be my people. That is, that's the path of the meal. Look at what God is saying. Look at what I have done through my outstretched arm and my mighty acts of judgment. Look who I am. I think the Lord, I think Jesus Christ eagerly desires to display the power and the love of God. And this is a perfect illustration of it. This is the best illustration that we have of the love and power of God set beside the only demonstration that the universe has ever known of the true love and power of God. And that's what the Lord is doing here. He's, dem- he's illustrating his love and his power for us, and I think Jesus Christ eagerly desires that. I think Christ at all times and everywhere desires to show the love and power of God. I think the Greek is, I desire with desire to show this to you. You know, when I, when I if you may be like me, when I prepare for the Lord's Supper, I often go through this solemnity. I have these somber sorries that I kind of do by habit. The music goes, it's about to do, it's about to happen. Some of you will experience it where you're, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Right? And you search yourself out, right? This is good. It's like us washing our hands. It's like us purging the leaven when we kind of do this. And if only we could do this more. But this, there, in all of that, I, I get lower and I get lower and I get lower and I, I crawl to the foot of the cross sometimes. And I, you know, where you don't even want to, I don't even want to look above the feet of all the things I've done and continue to do. And I have this spirit of somber sorry and, and, and I am reminded from this chapter of Luke that Jesus eagerly desires that I come. You know, you're here. There's got to be somebody in this room who says, well, I understand that Jesus would have paid the penalty of sin for that person, but for me, I'm saying for you, he eagerly desired to do it. He has eagerly desired to show us his love. Like there is no one who can not approach the throne without experiencing the eager desire of the Lord. In the faith, this, this meal that we're about to share is for those who have experienced the Passover. That's for those of us who have been brought out, 
who have been rescued, who have been redeemed, and who will be taken to be the Lord's people. And so if you're not in Christ Jesus, if you don't yet call him Lord and Savior, I would encourage you not to disengage for the next 15 minutes, not to check out, but to let the elements pass and to sit and just resonate with what you've heard, with the scriptures in front of you, with in prayer. I would encourage you to try to draw close to the Lord in the ways that you know and allow these elements just to pass by you because they're for those people who are in Christ. And they're for you not because you're good, but because the Lord eagerly desires that you would know that he remembers your sin no more. Pray with me as we share the table with the Lord. Lord, you are good. And you've shown us so often in your word. You've shown us your heart, Lord, and your power, your love and your power, Lord. The way you have brought us from slavery, Lord. Those of us in Christ confess to you that you have taken us and that you are making us new, Lord. The way you have freed us from the penalty of death, the way you have redeemed us. And the promise that you're making us your people. Lord, and we, we participate now in, at this table with the bread and with the cup. Lord, as an illustration of what your son has demonstrated on the cross, Lord, we say that it has happened. It is finished. It is, it is true for us. And we worship you through these elements this morning, Father. Bless our hearts. Help us to examine ourselves, Lord, but with confidence. The confidence of being in your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.